Hi, I'm Brett Terpstra, and this is Systematic on ESN. My guest this week is Sean Shibley. He's a software developer in Kansas City, Kansas. Um, but the reason that I brought him on today is because there has been, obviously, for years now, a lot of talk about Islam and Christianity and their relationship to politics in the U.S. and worldwide. And uh, and I have always found so many differing interpretations of everything that I have wanted to bring someone in who could be objective in the discussion and clear some things up for me and hopefully for a lot of people. So, uh, Sean, why don't you tell us what makes you qualified for this discussion? Okay. Uh, thank you, Brett. Um, so I was raised in the Orthodox Christian church, uh, and while I do culturally identify with it, I don't consider myself particularly religious. However, given that the church is out of Antioch, uh, which is Syria, and also has a strong presence in Lebanon, uh, and that I am Lebanese myself, and I have been in the region a lot, and I've been able to kind of observe what's happening without being too strongly involved in it. Also, uh, my father, who isn't with us anymore, is or was a researcher in religious terrorism, kind of pioneered that as a separate uh, area of study in political science. And uh, my mother is also a professor teaching in, uh, researching PTSD and its effects on women. Uh, and I've been able to see, just in my general discussions, a lot of misconceptions and a lot of bad analogies and misunderstandings about this whole problem that we have in the Middle East and all this rage and anger and hate that's going around. You find people who have this information usually have a slant on it. They're part of one of the groups or they're related to one of the groups or they've had people they love killed by another group and, and memories run along in that region and it's hard to find somebody who can just say, okay, let's just figure out the facts and see what happened everywhere. Well, it seems like it's it's not that simple in general, especially in the Middle East, but even in the U.S., it's not just a matter of let's lay out the facts. There seems to be a lot more zealotry involved, and I think that's what I think that's what scares people and that the the more conservative factor in the U.S. is is hinging the fear upon is this idea that there is no rational basis here. How do you see that standpoint? Well, the problem is there is a rational basis, and it's a political one, but the people at the core of that have riled people's religious passions and turned it into um, a, a holy war. You're right, it is zealotry, and you're gonna, the, the one misconception that always kind of puts me on edge is people will say that like this conflict has been going on for thousands of years. Yes, I hear that a lot. And it has not. It started right after World War II. Okay. That's like saying, you know, France and England have been at war for 2,000 years. That's just really not true. Uh, there have been periods in those 2,000 years that they have been at war, but no, not particularly more or less in any other region for that time in history, if that makes any sense. Yeah. So if you really want to go to the core, core root issue that kind of has our problems today as we see them, it's that uh, it's at the end of World War II, the Ottoman Empire was divided up by the allies along political lines based upon who helped to do what. Not based upon things that made sense from like an ethnic or religious grouping. So you had countries made like Iraq, which was kind of grouped out of three different countries. And then they just kind of kept toying with it, right? We have, you know, our own involvement 
and with the Iran-Contra affairs going on and on and on and all that stuff. And I'm not going to take a particular stance one way or another because we don't have all year. But the point is, the countries that they exist today were created because uh, the Allies took a carrot and stick approach at the end of World War II and kind of redrew borders and, and installed governments that weren't very uh, reasonable given the situation. Um, so, you know, you would actually be surprised about in not by modern standards, but by historic standards, um, the Ottoman Empire and a lot of the Arab empires were actually pretty tolerant compared to a lot of the Christian empires. Uh, the Ottoman Empire, for example, you know, allowed people to be openly Christian or Jewish and offer them protection. Uh, I mean, again, this is Middle Ages we're talking about, so it's not what we would consider in our modern sensibilities. But by those sensibilities, they were pretty, pretty radical. Like they said, instead of you know burning people or harming them, they simply said, you know, we'll tax you at a higher rate, etc. Sure. Um, but now we have, so World War II happened and certain groups helped the Allies and certain groups more or less stayed out of it. And those groups that helped the Allies, like, you know, we basically got Jordan and Saudi Arabia out of that. And Syria was kind of carved off into what became Lebanon. And then, uh, you know, the whole Israel issue happened. And these were conflicts that really were political in nature, but because of kind of the ham-hand-fistedness of that interaction, you have a lot of groups who, for hundreds and thousands of years, have said, this is my side of the line, this is your side of the line, let's just not, let's just not, you know? Yeah. Uh, now they're side by side under one government, and you have groups from, people from one group being governed by people from another group, and just simmering tension and anger, right? Um, so, then we have these, ex- and we have these extremist groups show up, these, you know, these are madmen. And one thing I want to kind of take an aside, you know, obviously the elephant in the room is, is this whole Daesh movement, ISIS, ISIL movement, that thing, and whatever word you want to use. Um, so that's the Islamic State. Yes. So th- this is an organization that has actually existed for a while uh, under many names, uh, under many groupings, and it was part of Al-Qaeda for a while. Like, it started off as an independent group. It basically jo- joined into Al-Qaeda around 2006, and basically became Al-Qaeda's presence in Iraq. So uh, up until that point, Al-Qaeda really had nothing to do with Iraq. It was mainly a Saudi Arabian thing. Okay. Um, So I'm going to take this moment to kind of explain the various different sects, and since, again, we don't have all year, I apologize, (laughs) because I'm going to briefly explain them, and yeah, there's a lot more detail that we could go into, but it's hard. So the fundamental divide in Islam is the Shia Sunni line. What that is, is it's over who should have succeeded the Prophet Muhammad. Not who did succeed it, but who should have been the one to succeed it. Uh, and the two people who were up for it were Abu Bakr, who was pre-Muhammad culture, would have said should have been the, the first caliph, the first, uh, clan, uh, basically the clan leader after Muhammad. But then there was Muhammad's son-in-law and father of his grandchildren, a guy named Ali, who was and history is hard to say, but he was probably the one that Muhammad would have had picked had he had, had his choice. Okay. But the, it, the argument was, do you get to pick your successor or does the group get to pick their successor? If that makes sense. Okay. So there was an argument and I mean, it, I'm not going to, I really can't be objective because there isn't like an objective historical record. So I'm not going to say who did what, where, but what we can say is about, 90% of the people backed Abu Bakr, the, uh, the 
the elder one, and about 10% backed uh, Ali. There was a war. Um, it went the way you think it would have gone, but there was some grudges formed because of the way that uh, Ali's children, Muhammad's grandchildren, uh, and relations were killed in this war. So uh, you'll see things like naming conventions. And so the Shia and the Sunni, the Sunni are the ones, uh, the, the larger group, and the Shia is a smaller group. So the Shia tend to be disenfranchised to this day. Uh, there's still a lot of grudges and, and bitterness over that. Um, so religiously, dogmatically, doctorally, they're the same. The two, they, don't, they have the same books, the same scriptures, the same that sort of thing. Uh, a lot of times, a lot of the differences they have are traditional differences, simply to be different. Like, you know, if you wear white, I'll wear green, that sort of thing. Sure. Uh, and they don't necessarily acknowledge each other's um, hadas. They're like, uh, well, you could think of it almost as like, you know, the differences in state law that still have the same constitution or like the civil, like case law. Are you familiar with that concept of like how case law works? No, actually, at all. not at all. So, like, in our legal system in the U.S., like, if, if a court makes a decision, then that sort of holds unless a higher court overrules it. And that's, like, case law. It's kind of like making a law, right? Like, two people have an argument. This is how it goes. And we kind of know how that works, right? Sure. So, if you can imagine that, like, you have two, like, you clone the U.S., right? You have two different versions of the U.S. under the same general legal framework, right? But they have just completely independent case law. Like, all those decisions that are based upon disputes and resolutions and questions may or may not be similar. So, there are minor differences here and there, but by and large, it's, like, from a what-do-they-believe framework, it's the same. So, really, that was kind of the core conflict that, like, you have, and this kind of goes into the also definition of what is an Arab, right? Yeah, okay. Because, for example, Iran is uh, Persian, by ancestry, and they are really their own ethnic group, like their religion, for, or, or they're not religion, their language, sorry, is uh, not even related to Arabic. See, this is crazy to me because I, you know, I grew up, like my earliest memory of the Middle East was the first Iraq war. And from news, news reports from then on, it was all just the Middle East. And I don't think of it as different cultures even. It's not, it's impossible for me to fathom the diversity that you're explaining right now. So this is, this is amazing. Yeah. So that's not part of the problem. So like the Persians are, I mean, there are similarities, right? But so, I, so again, I'm Lebanese, right? Lebanon is a fairly Western society, society and actually it's a Christian country. Okay. Right. But it's right there and borders Israel and it's between uh, Israel and Syria. Right. And it's got its own problems. Um, it's got its own weird legal system that's basically based upon, well, the short way to explain it. You know how you have, in our, in our country, we have representation based upon the population of your state? Yes. Make that be the legal system, except switch out state with religious sect. But so, like, the Protestant Christians will have their seats in Congress, and the Shia Muslims will have their seats in Congress, and the Maronite Christians, and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's my biggest fear here. Well, yeah, but <laughs> so like, and then you have weird things like your family laws decided by a religious court. Anyway, point is like, there's all sorts of things going on, but generally speaking, like Beirut, which is a Lebanese country, you go there and you can have some neighborhoods that look like Iran and you have some neighborhoods that looks like, you know, Paris. So the anecdote I like to give is like, I was in Lebanon uh, in 2007 
And I'm on a cell phone back to the States with one of my friends, and she asks me, how bad is it over there? Is it, is it horrible? And I'm like, well, I just bought a shirt at the Armani store. I'm holding a <laughs> smoothie, and I'm on my way to – I'm standing in a mall on my way to a swimming pool. You know? That doesn't sound like what I picture. Exactly. And then you go to like – you have to, the distances involved are not small. Like I'm, I'm in Kansas City right now, and from Beirut to Baghdad is further than here to Mexico City. Oh, wow. It'd be like if some European person came to me and said, hey, uh, you know, your country, that's the one with all the drug cartels, right? And I'm like, no, no, that's, that's Colombia. That's a very different thing. <laughs> it's almost like we, like the media here pulled like a, a 1984 style propaganda thing where they just picked a part of the world that we knew the least about and then just made up what we were supposed to think about. That. Basically, we fought a bunch of proxy wars with Russia in the... In the Cold War era? Yeah. So, you know, you had Vietnam, you had the Iran-Iraq War, you had all these sorts of things that were kind of like, well, they backed, we backed this because they backed them, and, right? Well, yes, and that's where, when, when you were talking about drawing the, the lines of the, the countries, like the borders, that's where it gets interesting to me is because if you go back to, like, World War II and on, we basically... I mean, the world, especially the, the Western world, we, we created a lot of what's going on there by trying to manipulate governments, by trying to manipulate armies and coups and rebellions and install dictators and install democracies. And a lot of what we see now can be traced back to places we tried to manipulate. Exactly. But you also take it to another level of all this false dichotomy, right? All this false... Similarity, right? So, for example, the 9-11 attacks, which were a horrible, horrible thing, right, were basically perpetrated by a Wahhabi group called Al-Qaeda, which was based out of Saudi Arabia, right? Yeah. What are the two countries we invaded over that? Iraq and Afghanistan. Okay. Now, Iraq was, you know, we kind of had a grudge against Saddam, right? But Saddam, if you remember, was like, no, we have nothing to do with him. We're not holding it, right? And Saddam was a horrible person, right? He's not a good guy, but he did kind of rule that country with an iron fist, and that's... Well, notice what happened yeah. without that. Like, for example, we, we would go back saying, you know, he gassed the Kurds, he gassed the Kurds. He did indeed gas the Kurds, but do you know how we know he gassed the Kurds? We had fighter planes over it watching it happen. Ah. If we really disagreed with it, I think we could have done something about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and what we ultimately did something about wasn't even a real uh, documented instance. Yeah. We had plenty of reason to to take action before that. Sure, and I'm not I'm, I'm not going to get into should we have or shouldn't we have because, but again, if our goal was to go after Al Qaeda, that was not the way we do it, right? But there's this weird dichotomy that like the Iraqi, which Iraq is an interesting country because it's like a third Kurdish, a third Shia, and a third Sunni, right? And then you've got Iran, which is sort of the Shia powerhouse, like militarily speaking. And then you've got uh, really no other Shia strongholds. I mean, there's some in Lebanon and there's some elsewhere, right? But they're usually a minority group. Iran's really the only place where they're like the majority group, right? Um, but they're not even Arab. They're Persian. Okay. And like if you get into like the wider scale, like uh, African Muslims, Indonesian Muslims, those sorts of things, like, I mean, people don't even know Indonesia is the most Muslim, like has the most Muslims in it of any other country. You take all the Muslims in all the other countries, put them together and count them against the Indonesian Muslims and they don't match. I mean, I don't think they even come up to half. Yeah, I, I, I did. I did know that from a peripheral standpoint. So yeah. like the Shia Sunni, like the, the passion over it really is kind of in the region that starts at the coast of Asia and kind of through maybe half of Pakistan. 
and then it sort of doesn't matter much outside of that kind of region. And yeah, Pakistan is, you know, closer to Indian culture than it is to Arab culture. Uh, Arab Lebanese culture is closer to Greek culture. Uh, we have a, like, I mean, um, like the, the, the Arab, quote unquote Arab, like true Arab, like the Saudi Arabian Arabs, they trace their history back to like, you know, uh, Mesopotamia and that and the Lebanese groups, kind of the Levantan groups come from the Phoenician Empire, which was a whole different sort of thing. So culturally and ethnically and historically, these are people who have wildly different groups of experiences, but they're kind of being lumped together in our worldview. And that's part of the problem. Um, so the group Islamic State, the Levant would be the region that's like Syria, Lebanon, Israel, that region, right? Uh, so ISIS is Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. ISIL is Islamic State in uh, Iraq and the Levant, right? So that, that's where those two words come from. Okay. The third one, Daesh, is it really makes the, that group very angry to be referred to it because it's basically that same ISIS acronym but in Arabic. The thing okay. is, in Arabic, you don't do that. Like those sorts of acronyms, that's linguistically weird. Okay. You know what I mean? It'd be like, you know how in Japanese they like take two words that shorten them both and stick them together? Yeah. So like, you know, Gundam modeling kids become Gumpla for gun and that sort of stuff, and that just yeah. sounds really weird to us. Well, it's sort of like that. So it's just kind of like a weird, almost insulting name, and it also is close to Das, which is like stampede. Okay. So what well, one of the phrases that I've heard a lot more, and you mentioned it earlier, is Islamic State, and this is a confusing term to me as an American because um, it sounds to me like it's referring to Islam. I feel like, well, and then there's Islamism, which is different than being Muslim. This is my interpretation. I'm still trying to figure this part yeah. out. Yeah. So there are a lot of words that, that people use. So if you want to be like strictly proper, the religion is Islam. Things pertaining to Islam are Muslim. And then Islamism, I think, is just trying to be a separate word to be like extremist to the point of not really being... Right. Yeah. And I feel like it's it's such a close match in terminology that it's very misleading, I guess. Yeah. And we kind of have I mean, and every religion has it. I mean, not at the scale of like of, of this thing here, but pre 9-11, you know, the biggest attack on U.S. soil terrorist attack was by a Christian extremist. Yes. And so extremism, well, you take one small part of the religion and hyper-focus in on that and then become so angry about that such that it like fills your worldview to the point where it's unrecognizable and frankly horrific to other practitioners is not, you know, it's not a uniquely one culture or another thing. It's just, it's at a huge scale now. So yes. the problem is, the fundamental problem with, with, so Islamic State, they mean their version of Islam should be like a theocracy based upon what they view, which is like an extremist Sunni view, right? Yeah. So if you're Shia, you get one chance to become Sunni, and if you don't, then we're just going to kill you and move on. And it just this, it is kind of like this just unified rage that's kind of like mass hysteria almost that's swept. And uh, you have some interesting things happening because like the original equipment and armament came from basically the military in Iraq that we have instilled when the Republican Guard went away, yeah. just kind of abandoning their posts. They basically noped out of it when the first sort of attacks happened and they got all that hardware. Right. Um, and then there are some, I mean, it'll be a long time before you know exactly who's funding what. There are some groups 
that are more prominent than others. Some people think it's a play on oil. I can't really speak to that. I don't know. You know, we won't know that for sure until history bears it out. Then simultaneously to this, you had something else called, you know, the Arab Spring happened, right? And that was targeted at some totalitarian regimes, mainly in Syria and Egypt. So Syria was already in unrest to begin with, right? Uh, and so they kind of were a mess. So the Islamic State group was able to make it into Syria and cause more problems there. So you have like two entirely separate problems. You have like the Assad regime that was like a totalitarian, you see how this is all just things upon things, right? Yes. So the thing we're seeing now is like, well, Syria is a, it's its own country. People, do we get involved? People don't get involved. And then ISIL made direct threats against Putin. And then Putin is now, you know, bombing them. And so now Russia's involved. And they're still not, militarily speaking, super duper organized. Um, so whenever they hit, like, the Kurdish military forces, or there's a separate terrorist group that's prevalent in Lebanon called Hezbollah, and they're kind of a, they're a terrorist group, but they're an organized paramilitary militia type one. Yeah, they were a precursor. I remember them from the 80s. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and I like to classify terrorist groups as, like, there are the expansionists and the protectionists is how I like to classify them. Okay. So you've got, like, Hezbollah or, like, the Yakuza in Japan. They're like, this is ours, and anybody who we find, for whatever reason, we're going to force you out and do bad things, right? Protectionists. Yeah. Yeah. And then you've got, like, the Islamic State, which is like, no, 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 everyone has to be like us or die. Okay, so this brings me to a, a, an important question that I think fits in perfectly right here. Is It was recently presented to me by some uh, very fundamental Christians that there is a passage in the Quran that dictates that Muslims have to kill uh, infidels. And then there were later teachings by Muhammad that instilled this idea that if you are going to be Muslim, you will take part in uh, an extremist jihad. And this struck me as unbelievable. Like, I couldn't fathom that if the entire Muslim population of the world wanted to kill everyone else, that any of us would still be here. So I researched the term jihad and learned uh, that it has many different meanings and many different practices, and it's not just terrorism. Um, what what would you say presented with that idea? And I can show you the passage in the Quran. It was like one sentence, much like the Christian Bible mentions homosexuality once. But um, what what if if you looked at the the religion of Islam and said this is a core tenant, uh, the idea of of the infidel and jihad? What would your response be? Okay, so. This is actually a very good question. And um, this is why you can't read one sentence out of a holy book. You know, there's the whole book there for a reason. <laughs> I totally agree. Okay, so there is that passage. That passage does exist that infidels must be converted by the sword is the rough translation. Yeah. Two things I'm going to say about that. First of all, there is, this is not a something present in Christianity, but there is something in Judaism and Islam, which is, the Quran ceases to be the Quran the minute it is translated. Yeah. So, so in order to read the Quran, one must first learn Arabic, right? Because uh, it, uh, at best, anything translated would become the meaning of, like, an interpretation, right? They, they don't allow versions. Like, you know, you don't have a King James Quran. Um, so the inherent mis disconnect in that is the definition of the word is infidel, 
Okay. Muhammad himself said, and in Islam, there is a concept that they called the Al-Kitabin, the people of the book. So, for example, if you actually read the Quran at the time of judgment, when God sits in judgment, do you know who's going to be sitting there right next to him? I don't. Give your hands, not Muhammad. Jesus? Yep. Okay. Um, they actually acknowledge the virgin birth. They acknowledge a lot of things about Jesus. Uh, the only thing they don't acknowledge is that he is not of God. Uh, basically, the, 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 the argument on Jesus boils down to whether, God, whether Jesus' divinity is, whether he's a conduit for God's divinity, which would be probably the closest Muslim explanation, or whether he was of essence with the God himself, which is sure. the Christian. Okay, I'll just point out that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses also believe that Jesus was a conduit for the, so whatever. But the fundamental thing is, Jews and Christians would be considered Akatabin. They're directly considered that. Um, they are actually explicitly not to be molested under Islam. Okay. So the infidels in that case would be like your, you go back to the Old Testament, uh, Solomon built a temple to Ishtar, that sort of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we don't have many Ishtar worshippers anymore, so I mean, it's not really a thing anymore. Right. It's like Zoroastrians, which are kind of like an ancient precursor to Abrahamic religions, uh, Christians, Muslims would all, or Jews would all be considered al-Qatbiyin. They would be protected, explicitly protected under the under uh, Muhammad's teachings and the Quran. Okay. So that is the problem: is that the 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 mis the misinterpretation is that infidel that term does not explicitly explicitly does not apply to Christians and Jews. <laughs> okay, that changes things. A yes, lot. and again, the statement is best translated as they must be converted, comma. And if it comes down to it, by the sword. It's right. not, go kill them. I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm saying it is, not a, it is not a mandate to go kill other people. It is a mandate to, if, if you encounter these groups and they do not convert, then you have to do whatever it takes. And as a last resort, do that. I'm not saying it's a good thing, but that's kind of, that would be the well, interpretation. In the, in the older uh, Christian, like Old Testament and the Jewish texts, there are a whole list of reasons why you need to stone people. Oh, oh, no, no. The Old Testament? <laughs> yeah. Read the Old Testament. It is basically a guidebook on when it is and is not appropriate to kill someone. Right. So I'm, I'm just saying like that can't be taken as you, you can't judge a religion based on, again, yeah. a single line in a exactly. religious text. And even then, one that's easily misinterpreted. And like Islam did a lot of things really like wildly progressive for that time. Right. The first religion that gave any kind of marriage protection to women was Islam. Like the first uh, Abrahamic one, right? Uh, so, I mean, granted, it, it is nowhere near equitable. And again, by our current sensibilities, it would be horrible. But the first religion that gave women even the right to, to leave an abusive relationship or to be heard was Islam, right? You, you, you hear commonly like men can arbitrarily divorce women. Yeah, but they set preconditions that they would actually be taken care of financially if that happens. That sort of stuff, right? Yeah, that's actually that, very different than my, uh, what I've been told. So that's, that's intriguing. Yeah, so like, for example, if you're going to marry somebody, before you marry... So there are kind of two reasons that a man can divorce a woman in Islam. One is basically for cause, right? And I mean, I'm not going to say, like, I'm not going to say those causes are good, but like, you know, infertility, sure, yeah. something. Like something that you didn't know of beforehand comes up and she is undesirable to you and therefore that would be considered like a for cause divorce. And then there is the, eh, I just don't like you anymore one, right? Okay. Um, the woman actually, the female actually can also petition for a four-cause divorce, although her criteria are far less sure. broad. But still, she at least there is some mechanism that acknowledges their basic humanity and ability to like 
protest something, right? Which is a big step. Uh, but also at the beginning of the marriage, you actually specify, okay, and if I were to use my arbitrary right of divorce, here's what you would get. A prenup. Exactly. Huh. And it's, you, you actually go in front of a clergy person and you fit and you make that agreement. And like, I mean, not, again, this is not, I mean, it's not, you're making it with her father or her brother or her uncle or something, but you are actually sitting down and they are right, it's, it's writing in the book. They're literally writing in the book. And if you do this, here is what she will get. And it's actually usually pretty, like, intended to be reasonably substantial. Sure. But the problem is that was done in, you know, the year 500 and now 1500 years have gone by. That hasn't changed, but the world has, you know. Got it. But yep. so the whole Christian fear is actually like Christians are explicitly to be tolerated. And in fact, the only thing you can do is tax them at a higher rate <laughs> under the teachings of. Well, yeah. And if you if you read on that same passage, it talks about like uh, how how crops, I think crops should never be spoiled and they're like rules for engagement and it's not yes. it's it's exactly not terrorism it's almost a a benevolent warfare it's a geneva convention of sorts exactly it is i mean and this is the problem you can't point to one single sentence you know i can you take any body of text and i can make it look absurd by just highlighting certain passages of it right yep. but again this is the modern world we live in most people can't be bothered to read their own religious books let alone Right. And I mean, we see this in, Christ in Christianity, they quote passages of scripture like they mean anything, right? Yep. They spend entire hours dissecting one verse and interpreting it. And my big thing is, you know, two of the biggest prohibitions in Christianity are don't pretend to know the mind of God and judgment is mine, saith the Lord. Depending right? on what day it is, really. No, I mean, no, read, <laughs> yeah. if you read the Bible, yeah, it's no, in there. No, I, I understand, but that is not uh, necessarily yeah. the practiced version so if you say God feels this way, right, if you say in Christianity, if you say God believes this, you are pretending to know the mind of God. That is a, one of the greater sins. Sure. Right? You don't know. The whole idea is God is not you. You don't know what God knows. You are not God. Don't pretend to be God. Don't make yourself appear of God, right? Yeah. So you can say this is what was said, but you cannot say God hates this or you will do that, right? Because that's not for you to say. That's, you know, anyway. So there are misinterpretations rapidly. So, so, but the problem is these misinterpretations exist on both sides. So you do have people, you know, like the Islamic state, and they say they see this conversion by the sword. They, for some reason, forgot to read the parts about, you know, what it is and it's not appropriate to engage in what you may or may not do. They, they, they conveniently don't read those parts, but you have people screaming, you know. And then you, you add to that, like, that is, that's not the reason. It's not because they are Muslim. It's political tension. It's disenfranchisement, mass hysteria put through the lens of Islam. Sure. If that makes so, sense. So ultimately, it comes down to it really isn't. It's a battle of extremists, not a battle of religion. Exactly. And they just happen. It's, it's basically a Mad Max scenario. <laughs> yeah. So with the, with, with the rise of Islamic State and ISIS and ISIL and all of this, um, terrorism has become... Uh, a top concern for us. What is the end game of a group like ISIS w with the with the Paris attacks and the attacks around the world and in the U.S.? What are they trying to provoke? What what is their goal in doing this? It can't just be to cause damage. It has to be to incite some kind of end game. Well, I mean, the end game's right there in the name. The, the Islamic State. 
Yeah, it's uh, the Islamic State in Iraq and the Levant. It's they 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 know they're not going to beat the U.S. Right? They're not going to march on the U.S. Right? right. That's not going to happen. You know, they're crazy, but I wouldn't say they're stupid. No, they, um, they seem rather intelligent about warfare. My theory is they're trying to provoke us into doing more stuff like the Iraq War so that they can cause more disenfranchisement so they can get more people to their cause and actually get their goal, which is the Islamic State. And I, there, there was a statement by ISIS after Paris saying that they wanted to eliminate the gray zones in the Islamic State. What does that mean? Well, like Lebanon, for one. Okay. In Lebanon, you can walk around and see girls in miniskirts. You have Christians. You have that sort of stuff, right? Um, you have the Kurds. You have pretty much any Shia. You have pretty much any Christian in the area. You have pretty much that sort of stuff. And they need, they're not strong enough to do it yet, but they're not orders of magnitude away from that. So, so the goal would really be to force the the larger powers that be to restrict borders, to lock things down, to almost expel the Muslim community so that they can draw hard lines in the sand, as it were? Again, that'd be my guess. I'm not privy, but I would imagine that that's it. They just basically want to make one big, they want to make one big theocracy that is their version of that theocracy. See, and I feel like understanding that, I feel like if we could come to an understanding of the end goal, because terrorism is a very, it's an insidious form of warfare um, that really is all about smoke and mirrors mm-hmm. and if we could clarify what exactly it is they want us to do we could avoid doing it but i feel like right now our reactions generally play to their playbook well except i think they made one mistake what's that putin don't play yeah well <laughs> and they they really <laughs> should have just kind of left that bear sleeping <laughs> yeah that makes sense you, terrorism works against reasonable Predictable and reasonable uh, uh, foes. Yeah, but the successor to Stalin is not one of those. Right. Yes, I. I you know what I mean? Agree. Yeah. Like, and I'm not trying to little it. I mean, saying you, you're talking about, you know, there's a big difference between the SU-232 and what they've been dealing with before. Yeah. I mean, the Iron Curtain is it was a thing. This is, I feel, the one lesson that. In the last 150 years, nobody's learned. You know, Napoleon, Hitler, now these guys, just pretend Russia doesn't exist. <laughs> yeah, I think that gets harder, though, as, uh, as they maintain their uh, superpower position. I'm just saying, Napoleon, well, to, yeah, this guy, Napoleon couldn't do it. Hitler couldn't do it. Let's just. <laughs> and just it's kind skip, of like. Skip that piece on the Monopoly board. Exactly. Kind of like, you know what the Roman Empire, Alexander the Great, the British, uh, the British and uh, the Ottomans all have in common? No, what? They tried and failed to conquer Afghanistan. That, yes, I have actually heard a historical account of how, uh, how Afghanistan has been what mired down many armies. Yeah, it's, it's a little hilly. <laughs> little hilly, unpredictable and well stocked with people who know the terrain better than you do. Yeah, I mean... That's that's kind of the problem. It's it's again. That's that really the problem boils down to people going into cultures they do not understand and trying to manipulate it on a grand scale using simply force of arms, which I think summarizes the entire problem. Exactly. I mean, and that's it. It, it was the World War II problem. It's this problem. It's all of it. You're getting people. And all you're doing is building. I mean, even with cultures we do understand, like Germany at the end of World War One, we we did the same thing, and then like nothing, nothing, nothing. Then the Blitzkrieg. You know. I mean. Right. Huh. Yeah. 
All right. Well, I think that that clears up for me a lot of my confusion about the relationship of Islam to things like the Islamic State, the meaning of jihad and infidel. Um, yeah, I think I think we can call this discussion there. Cool. Yeah, and I just want to point out again that you know I did summarize a lot of things because we don't have. Right. You know, you can do a PhD on this. And I was going to say, this isn't, this isn't a, a thesis statement or anything. We're just trying to clear up some, some of my own questions here. Okay. And if anyone cares to uh, differ, let me know. I'm, I'm happy to, to have as many voices as want to discuss this. Um, but let's get back to you now. You, you are, you're a very technical person. You work in software development for a large and complex corporation or a company that we're not allowed to talk about. Yeah. Secretive. It is a little secretive. Um, yeah. Uh, my general job responsibilities have actually been <laughs> kick over all the anthills, burn down all the old stuff and bring in new stuff. That's kind of the job description I have. <laughs> so obviously a company that's been around for long enough to have a lot of old stuff, huh? Yeah, but a company that's actually really committed to doing things correctly. Yes. And so they're the sort of company who's like, okay, our old thing isn't working well. Let's go find somebody who really understands something new and let's go have them do it. And, you know, obviously it's not like one person running around. You know, I have, I have a team of wonderful people. And yes, of course, we're very conservative. We have all our checks and balances in places. But yeah, I do play with a lot of new technology and I get to decide if it's useful or not. That sounds fulfilling. I, it I is. like the sound of it. Um, so you do have uh, three top picks prepared? Oh, God, yes. I had a hard time narrowing it down to three. <laughs> All right. Well, I will let you go first with your first pick. Okay. My first pick is super techy and geeky. It is the best programming framework slash language that nobody's ever heard of. It's called uh, Groovy on Grails, not to be confused with Ruby on Rails. Um, so G-O-G, Groovy on Grails. And uh, is, that a, is it a whole language or...? Just a framework based on something? Tell me. It is. So, yeah, it is two parts. It's the Groovy programming language and the Grails framework. And it is, if you want to imagine, take the best parts of Ruby and Python and put them on the JVM. Hmm. So, uh, I don't know how technically you want me to get, but the Java is a programming language that is pretty ubiquitous in the corporate world. Um. It's dot, you know, Microsoft has a competitor that's also pretty big called, you know, uh, .NET. But it is notorious for being kind of the COBOL of the 20th century, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it is reliable, super well supported. The infrastructure for it is well known and well understood. And one of the things it does is it basically has this virtual machine that, you know, instead of compiling down to machine code, you compile the code down to uh, this bytecode that you then have different virtual machines for everything, right? Yeah. Well, the realization in the last 10 years was like, hey, this really all we need then is a new command syntax with this JVM and we can have all sorts of cool features without all the super like technically correct Java stuff. So there have been a few programming languages on the JVM, um, several of them good. One of them that I like a lot is called Groovy. Um, and it is very Python-y except without meaningful white space. It's um, a very expressive language with a lot of constructs that uh, you would like. So, it sound, That sounds intriguing, and it's not a language I hear at all about. Is this mostly uh, server-side development, or does it do 
front end or uh, or native applications? So it's Java, so it's JVM. So native applications, no, there are desk, there are desktop frameworks for it. Griffin being the most famous one. Grails is a server side web framework, and it's great. Okay. Um, and uh, in my current job and in my past job, I have used Grails a lot. Okay, so this is—it's very much uh, uh, the equivalent of Ruby on Rails, but in uh, a Java environment. So exactly, it's like Ruby on Rails, except you know how everybody says Ruby on Rails is a toy language. I've heard that. Yeah. You can say, "Yeah, this is on the JVM. What up?" <laughs> you know, it's like this is like on Tomcat running. You can access, uh, and Rails the framework is really just Spring with a really strong config- configuration over convention approach, or convention over configuration approach. So. This, when you finish writing it, comes to something that is very, very similar to like a traditional Spring app. And when you put it on the Tomcat server, the Tomcat, you know, it looks a lot like a Java Spring app, right? Like yeah. your big old stodgy, like, but it, instead you're writing something that looks like Ruby on Rails and you have your own local environments and all that cool MVC stuff and all of that built into it. And um, I'm not somebody like, Harkening to our older comfort. I'm not somebody who's very religious about my technology, <laughs> right? Like, I, you show me something and I'm like, yeah, that's better. Uh, of all the web development languages, Groovy on Grails is really, as of today, I, and I could be wrong tomorrow, but as of today, it is the one, in my opinion. Interesting. Like it's, it's so qu- it's ridiculously quick and easy. Uh, you can, it takes all the boilerplate out. Like, even if you just wanted to do like a REST API, yeah. you literally, can just map out a domain model that just has your fields and just annotate it as a REST API, and then that's all you do. Wow. All right. Well, I'll look into this for sure. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how, how many listeners will, but that that is a strong endorsement. All right. Well, my first pick is a Mac app. It's called Timing. And I can't remember if I picked it in the past, but there are some very cool uh, updates coming to it, maybe even out by the time this uh, episode goes live. But it runs in the background on your Mac and tracks everything you do, what applications you have open, what uh, documents you have open, what web pages you're on, what, uh, what directories you're in in terminal, and, uh, and then lets you, this is just, you know, it's for your own reference, no servers involved, and you can always turn on private mode, but, um, but then it, it gives you graphs and charts showing what you worked on and makes it easy to track back and say, what was I doing at this point in the day? And where do I spend the most time and things like that? And for me, I, I have a very um, distracted, easily distracted, short attention span, especially when it comes to uh, working on my computer, but not being engrossed in a single task. And I find it very helpful for uh, just getting back to what I was doing before the phone rang. Uh, and then it's also great for summaries like especially uh, uh, across a week or a month to see what what am i doing the most what am i spending the most time doing can actually help make behavior decisions um so yeah a uh, timing app for mac let's look into that yeah. all right what's your uh, number two my number two and i know you've talked about it before but i don't know if it's been a formal pick i'm going to kind of talk about plex flash the new apple tv uh i'm a big movie nerd and plex is in short, a movie management library, uh, a movie library management system, media library management system that works really, really well and it kind of has front end clients wherever you want. And on the new Apple TV, the Plex front end is amazing. I just, I'm so happy about it. Me too. 
It's really yeah. good. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's basically for anyone who who doesn't already know, it's a way to basically rip and and watch your own movies and share movies and uh, subscribe to TV shows. You can mix in torrents. That's what I use it for. Does it do even more than that? Uh, so I use it for that. I also use it. There's a Plexit bookmark if you're a Plexpass subscriber. So if you're browsing online, like from any of your computers, it's a little bookmarklet that you just click on and then we'll add it to your Plex Watch Later queue. So when you're at home later, you can click on it and watch it. Things like YouTube videos or? Yeah, yeah, yeah things like that. And also, um, like, I have a whole, like, it was a pain to set up. Once it sets up, it works great. Like, I have a whole Usenet system set up where I have, I just type into a web interface what show I want to watch and it just figures it out through Usenet. Nice. And uh, that's all. There's a lot of plugins for it. There's a whole, whole community of software around Plex. Um, and yeah, I can't say enough good things about it. it. I'm one of those people. Like I have had some sort of computer plugged into my TV since uh, since I since it required a VGA to RCA deck. Yep. Like before HDTVs, before any of that stuff, I've had you know some version of some kind of computing device plugged into some kind of TV, right? Yeah. And when I got my Apple TVs the first time in my adult life, I haven't had a computer plugged into my TV. I've had this thing, this Apple TV, and it, it's the first time I've done it and been happy with it. Um, the Fire TV, I have one of those in my like secondary room because it also runs Plex. It's a little cheaper, and you can get those yeah. Fire Sticks. The same sort of thing, but it's. I think the Apple TV is better, but the... Fire Six, you can't you can't argue with the twenty five bucks they're going for right now. Right. Well, and up until the latest uh, incarnation of the Apple TV, you had to hack it pretty far to get Plex to work on it. Um, yeah, I had done it once before on one of the earlier gens, but it just it wasn't fluid in the end. And I'm extremely happy with the new Apple TV OS and the ability to add actual like native Plex clients to it. Yeah, I actually gave right. up on my like. I'm a guy. I'm an Apple guy. I'm all Apple. Like, even my routers are Apple. Like, that's how Apple I am. And the one thing up until this is I had Fire TVs. Because, yeah, the Apple TV 3 was just kind of comically long in the tooth. Yes, I agree. All right. Well, my second pick is going to be an iPhone app called uh, Flying Ruler. I don't know if you've seen this, but there are a lot of ruler apps for the phone. But this one uses uh, kind of a combination of GPS and accelerometer to let you just, you hold it in one position that you want to measure from, and then you move it to the other position, and it'll tell you how far it went or how far it tilted. It can do angles, and it can do like short slides. You can do long measurements with it. It is uh, very accurate uh, within a certain range of error. I think uh, uh, within six feet, it has like a one-inch margin of error. And uh, so it's not a precision tool, but it's extremely handy when you just want to figure something out really fast instead of trying to slide a phone in a straight line to use it as a ruler. It's very oh good. My, oh, my God. That is I am buying it right now. I, I do recommend it. I use it frequently. Cool. Sorry. Yeah. I just don't want to forget about it. Just that's <laughs> It'll be in the show notes. Uh, OK, so my third recommendation is something I'm sure many people have heard about, but I just love it. It's, I think of all the iOS applications I use, this is the one that brings me probably the most joy, and that's Comixology. 
Um, Comixology, for those who don't know, is a comic book reading application. You can buy comics if online. Uh, you can't buy it through Comixology anymore. That's a little annoying. But you can subscribe to series and it will show up. And it just presents the comics in a very attractive way. Uh, it you can go panel by panel. Um, it has all the features you'd want it to do. It's just, it's just one of those apps that does one thing and does it very, very well. And I, as I said, yeah, probably if, all, if you stacked all the joy I got out of my iPad by application, took Comixology and compared it to all the rest of them, the Comixology stack would probably be higher than the net to total of the rest of them. <laughs> so you like reading comics on the iPad? Uh, yes, and I was a lapsed comic book reader. Like, I had been a comic book fan when I was a kid, and I had read them here and there as an adult, but before Comixology, like, Comixology is what brought me back into it, because I don't have time to go to a comic book store, right? Sure. Like, that sort of stuff. But this, it's just easy, and it works, and I'm super happy with it. Uh, there's a similar one from, if you're a Marvel fan, called Marvel Unlimited, which is very similar to Comixology, except instead of buying each comic individually, you basically pay a one-time, well, yearly fee, and you get access to most of the stuff that's six months old or older. And, uh, yeah, so that's a, like you pay $60 a year and then you have access to like their entire library, which is also pretty nice. I'm apparently an anomaly in the tech world in that I have never been into comic books. But part of that is because I don't, uh, the, the stacks of paper get too high. That's part of the problem. <laughs> that's a real problem. Uh, let me tell you, uh, I'm into comics, but I'm not into like, well, to a limited degree, I'm kind of into the capes and cowls, but I'm really... There's a publisher called Image. Yeah. I don't know if you've heard of them. I don't know. Uh, so Image Comics, they kind of were really popular in the 90s because they were like the spawn thing. But, oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. But they've kind of gone, grown past that. Whereas Marvel and DC are the two big ones. Like, And you go to work for Marvel, you know, they assign you to whatever, and then you work your way up, and eventually you're writing Spider-Man, right? But you're, you are working for Marvel writing Spider-Man, right? Right. Or working for a DC writing Batman or something or whatever, right? Sure. Uh, and, you know, you can't do what you want. Well, you can do what you want within certain guidelines, right? You're not going to be able to kill four. Right, sure. Or something like that. Um, image is kind of a different model. They have a few like that, like, but mainly a creator comes to them with an idea and then they own it and Image takes a cut. Like for publication and all that sort of stuff. Okay. So... You have a lot of things, like the guys who are big names at Marvel and DC will also have like image titles that are like what they want to do for themselves. And you have so much more diversity in the image public line. Like there is all sorts of weird stuff. Like there's one where, you know, people find out that when they climax, they can stop time. <laughs> and like... I, I, that's... um. I, I, that plot, that premise sounds really familiar to me. I'm trying to remember. I mean, and uh, it's like sometimes the pitch isn't, and there's one like this is your standard dystopian future, but it's so well done. Uh, so uh, Sex Criminals and Lazarus are the two that I just mentioned. But there's so many like weird, wonderful, and the big one saga. Like, you know, I, I'm sure Merlin Mann's done several episodes about how saga is amazing, but saga is amazing. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> So, I mean, there's a whole real world to it that's so much deeper and richer than just Batman and Superman. Did you ever see the movie Liquid Skies? Liquid Skies? No, I have not heard of that. I'm looking at, make sure I remember the title correctly. It was um, kind of post-punk, avant-garde fashion show. New Wave. It was, it's a new wave setting is what it is, but it's this really low-budget indie film about aliens that are attracted to the uh, chemi chemical, chemical release in the brain when humans orgasm. 
and huh. they show up and they try to feed off of that uh, kind of opiate effect. In- interesting. It's hilarious. Hilari- <laughs> hilariously bad, I would say. But my, my third pick actually ties into this pretty well. Um, like I said, I'm not a big comic book person, but I have greatly enjoyed the uh, live action stuff that has come out of all of like Marvel and DC and um, even some of the smaller ones. So like I've enjoyed all of this and uh, Netflix just came out with a new mini series called Jessica Jones. And I had never heard of the character. It's, it's a Marvel character, um, but I hadn't heard of her. And uh, they have Christian Ritter playing Jessica Jones and doing an amazing job of it. And I binge watched the whole series in about two days, I think. Oh, and man, it, it was a blast. I have been, so I have this friend, he's like one of my best friends, and I we have like this blood pack to watch all Marvel things together. And he had been on honeymoon for the last two weeks, and I've just <laughs> been chomping at the bit, and he's coming over like literally after this call, so that we can, I'm making him come over so we can sit down and watch some uh, Jessica Jones. It is, it is good. You will enjoy it. Netflix has had a lot of, uh, a lot of good kind of under the radar. Hulu's doing some good stuff now too with kind of comic book themed yeah. Fun. Uh, if you haven't seen Man of the High Castle out of Amazon, I would recommend that a lot too. I will put that on the list. It's kind of the original alt history. Man of the not, High Castle? Man in the High Castle? Man in the High Castle. It's a, it was a book in the 60s, but it's, um, it's like kind of the first what if the Nazis won. Okay. And I don't want to spoil it, but it, it, it's like the Watchmen, because Watchmen, I don't know if you know this, they tried and failed to film it like on four separate occasions before they finally got it. I didn't know that. And because it was considered largely unfilmable. <laughs> uh, and if you haven't read the comic book, they changed the ending in a way that a lot of fans hated, but I felt they kept the spirit of it, even though you changed the actuality of it. Right, and made it practical as a movie. Yeah, because I, did, the, I bought the book after seeing the movie, and yes, I'm, yeah, I'm love, familiar with that. Yeah, Lovecraftian horror type things show up, and that's really hard to do. But um, Man of the High Castle is one of those that was largely considered unfilmable for a long time. And then you're like, my God, they did it. And <laughs> they did it. So, Well, I feel like after seeing Inside Out, uh, the, the animated uh, what you, uh, graphic, yes. what do they call them? Like CGI movie? But it's an animated feature. Um, after seeing that, I feel like a lot of things that we had previously considered undoable because it wouldn't work in live film settings are going to be a lot more possible now because like inside out presented a very believable human world mixed with a completely, you know, uh, animated and in, in a seamless way that we haven't seen before. So inside out, like it's one of, I can't say how much I love that movie. It's so like, it's kind of like if you want to discuss what the best video game ever or the most important video game ever, you kind of have to agree not to talk about Tetris because (laughs) it's sort of like, Okay, you, oh, sure, you, you say Tetris, of course, you're right, but that's kind of beyond the point. It's kind of like saying Citizen Kane in a movie discussion. Yeah, it's like, okay, fine, yeah, sure, you're <laughs> right. I feel Inside Out is kind of like that, is that, like, it's, okay, to give you a little bit of context, the, earlier this year, uh, and I'm still kind of recovering from it, but I, uh, I used to be, like, a triathlete-type person, and I'm trying to get back into that, but I had this infection in my bones, like, actually inside the bone, okay. and... It was this horrible thing, debilitating pain, like literally hospitalized, delirious from pain, that sort of thing, right? Well, the day before I was hospitalized, when they still hadn't figured out exactly what it was, and I was just kind of in pain, and they were trying to think of what to do, like, I still 
physically went to the movie theater to see Inside Out, like at great personal like expense <laughs> in terms of pain, and I would still do that again. Like that was, like, I'm, I'm with you. I, I I totally understand. I consider it's in my top five of all time now. I feel like finally, like if a child, like yeah, somebody who has emotional issues and they simply don't have the vocabulary to speak about what they are, what's going on. It's one of those things. It's like, you, you know, you you don't have the words. To conceptualize it, you don't even have the mental framework to like. I think this gives you the mental framework, like we can give people of all ages, like a mental framework for metacognition. Yeah, and like there are whole like CBT fields around metacognition, and I'm like, they, these guys at Pixar. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I did actually. I don't know if you heard the episode I did where I just all I wanted to talk about was was Inside Out. Oh yeah, I did hear that. Uh, but yeah, I'm. I'm totally with you. It's just, especially as somebody who is like really into psychology, I'm like, yeah, it's not 100% technically right. And the academics are going to get, you know, going to be, and I get that point too. Just like comic book fans would be upset with the Watchmen. Yeah. And then I'm like, you know what? (laughs) It's, it really kind of, it's like when the cable industries and all the phone industries are saying gigabit internet is impossible. And then Google comes in and it's like, "Uh, observe as I do it. (laughs) You know, you can no longer say it is impossible. I am physically doing it now. Right. So even if it's not the best one in future, it is the one that made it clear that it could be done. And yeah. that's, I think, is a huge accomplishment. I agree. All right. Well, that was uh, a good episode 153 now. Uh, thanks for being here, Sean. Well, thank you very much. And yeah, feel free to w- reach out to me. If yeah. You Especially about Groovy, huh? Oh, yeah. Please do. <laughs> like I have... It's like my personal mission to get as many people because it takes away so much of the pain, like so much programmer frustration. And I feel like all programmers are my brothers and sisters and I want to make them feel a little better. <laughs> all right. Well, and I, I very much appreciate your insights on uh, religion and terrorism. That is uh, a oh. topic that I was very much looking forward to, to discussing. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know where this uh, this particular topic will go in the future, but this has been a very enlightening conversation. For Thank me. you very much. Have a good day. You too. And uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you in a week. Bye.